0: Church the kingdom of Saul um, to fully the kingdom of of David we have had you know David has had his his great victories over um, Goliath he 's led the army the uh, times that he 's been responsible and the people he 's been responsible for um, he has led well and but he has now made he has now um, Because of Saul's jealousy and because of Saul's rebellion against God, um, Saul has made David, you know, public enemy, or Saul's enemy, we should say, number one. Um, He's on his number one most wanted list. But Saul's son, Jonathan, um, is not prideful, is not jealous, um, loves David deeply, um, loves God, and is courageous and, and wants what God wants. Um, so much more than his personal ambition. Just an incredible story for us uh, to be reminded of. We also, in this context, now from what we saw last week, uh, Jonathan you know, um, ends up warning David. They make a pact, a covenant before the Lord to do good to one another and to each other's families um, all of their days. Um, and you know, David, uh, Jonathan's warning, has to flee. And so he's going to be on the run now, and that's what we're getting into this, this morning. But we should remember that at this point, David is probably not more than 20 years old. Um, and I think that's an important thing to remember you know, in, in the lessons that we've had here. And in, uh, you know, he's, still learning, um, he's still learning on the job, let's put it that way you know like most of us in life we have to learn on the, learn on the fly learn on the job learn as you go but as you are as you experience more things you gain more experience in how to handle various situations and, and some new stuff is being thrown at David and and how he has to handle situations and the things that he has to do and need to re- remember that sometimes the bible isn't giving us a great commentary on everything in the scriptures in terms of this was right or this was wrong or this was a good decision or, or a bad decision, but rather it gives us the history of what happened. In some places it's very explicit, this was wrong or this was good, and in other places um, we have to wrestle through those things a little bit more. But he's going to be on the run, uh, this spoiler alert, but uh, you know I think we're good to have a spoiler alert this morning on this. Um, he's going to be on the run for like the next 10 years. It's not until he's about 30 years old that he you know, is really on the throne over Israel. So for, for, from this point, from when Jonathan warns him and he takes out until this is all said and done, it's going to be a few chapters here in the scripture, but there's a good bit of time um, that takes place. It's not many chapters, but it's a decade of his life that he spends um, you know, pretty rough Um, hiding in caves and you know and and, in difficult situations but all of that is going to help teach him and equip him Um, though again that doesn't mean he's going to make the right decisions in all situations again spoil alert David makes a lot of mistakes um, along the way and and commits his own sins along the way Um, so we want to keep that in mind this morning um, and and just throughout, it's really more like it's actually less about this morning and more for the rest of 1 Samuel and in this, and into 2 Samuel. Okay, but I just want to to have that in our that context in our minds um, this morning. So let's go to the Lord again in prayer, and then we'll pick up in verse one of chapter twenty-one. Heavenly Father, again we come to you and just echo all that we've sung and and prayed already this morning, and we do pray that. Uh, your name would be lifted on high, dear God, and that you are great, that you are worthy of our praise and worthy of our full devotion uh, in our lives and, and help us uh, to seek after you. We, we come to this passage this morning, we're thankful that we're not um, hiding in caves and, and we're not on the run, but at the same time, Lord, we know that many of your followers are in um, dangerous places today. And for the sake of your name, um, take great risk um, for your glory and to spread your love and, and good news. And so we pray for them this morning, most of all, that they would be brave and courageous. And we pray the same thing for all our hearts, that whether in danger or not in danger, whether in perceived danger or real danger, God, that you would help us as your people to be bold and to be courageous. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So verse 1. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know about the business on which I send you. Or what I have commanded you, and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. And now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for which there was no bread but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So let's um, stop there for a minute, just to talk about this scene and, and what is what is happening here? It appears that at this time, that the tabernacle, or where these you know priestly things are happening, is in this place called Nob. Um, and as David has fled, this is where he has come to. You know, he's obviously um, under a lot of duress. Um, he's he's hungry. <laughs> you know, he is not sure who he can trust and who he cannot trust, you know, he's not just going to go to, like, some random person's house and say, you know, can I have something, you know, to eat. He wants to keep, you know, where he is, and, um, you know, he wants to be as discreet as as possible and be with people he thinks he can trust, you know, at least. Um, But he's a definitely, you know, when people are on the run, um, you know, this is the sort of thing that, Will be common to do, and he's going to make a couple decisions here. You're kind of like, wow, uh, but um, here's here's a situation he comes to when he comes to him like the priest, and you know he's he's alone. Um, at least he's alone; that no one is with him in his presence. Now, whether there are really young men that are you know a few people that are with him at this point already in the journey and are waiting for him, that's a little bit. Left to be seen. As we go on, it seems like to me, it seems like David is saying what he is saying to Ahimelech in an in an attempt and an effort to um, protect Ahimelech to give him what we would call plausible deniability. Right? Y'all understand that? You know, plausible deniability um, in a situation. You know, people are always kind of looking for like that legal you know, protection or way out of a situation, he's not going to come into Ahimelech and say, actually, you know, the king is trying to kill me and I want your help, you know, and protection because that would put Ahimelech in the crosshairs of the king. You know, immediately, you know, in the place of, of danger. Okay, so he doesn't, want, he doesn't want to do that. Now, then we have this question, what is this about this bread. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 30, is where we have the first um, you know, instruction about this, where the Lord says, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. He's saying how, you know, how things are supposed to be set up um, in the tabernacle, and this is you know, part of that. And Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, it says, and you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it, Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him, from the offerings of the Lord made by fire, by a perpetual statute. So this bread, this you know, was to be consecrated, was to be made you know holy. I mean, it's bread, right? So it's a common you know thing. Um, it's a common thing, but this bread has been made special because it is an offering. To God, and therefore, isn't to be treated, you know, in the same way that you know common bread would be treated. Um, and when it was, you know, done, when it was time for it to be changed out, um, Aaron and the, you know, the his descendants, the priestly line, you know, would eat of it, and that would be part of their, um, you know, nutrition. <laughs> that would be part of, of of how they how they lived, and that was true. As well for you know the animal sacrifices um, that they would have a portion of that as well, but things seem for the priests at this time, especially because Saul, remember, is so f- far from God um, in his dealings, and he's the king that things seem to be in a pretty bad situation for the priests at this time. We, wh- why, why, why do we think that? Well, there isn't common bread on hand. You know, they're having to use, they're not, it's like they don't have, you know, a lot of excess flour and, and other ingredients to be making regular bread all the time. They've got to, you know, kind of ration it out. And so they're eating the holy bread, but they're not making a lot of, you know, other breads. And so there's a, it seems like they're in a limited resource situation. There would have been 12 loaves that were there, um, and David, you know, takes five. Jesus uses this story. Um, to defend, really, both David and the disciples of Jesus. Uh, We see this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him so it does seem like they were with him. That's my bad. He out, I mean, in the, not necessarily there in the room. They're not in the room, but they're waiting. How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So Jesus uses that, this, this scene um, from David uh, because the Pharisees, you know, they don't want to speak badly about King David. Um, and especially in a situation where they don't believe he did anything wrong. So they'd have to change their viewpoint on David. You see what I'm saying? They would have to change their viewpoint on this scene in order to further accuse Jesus. So Jesus is is wise, of course, in using this as an example to show that his disciples are are innocent in what they're doing, you know, as they pluck the grains of head to eat as they as they walk. And he uses a couple of reasons. One of them is that Jesus, you know, and, and he uses David, um, knowing the Pharisees don't get this yet, uh, and many of them, some of them will get it eventually, but some of them never will, that Jesus is going to sit on the throne of King David ultimately forever and ever. You know, He's using David because he's connected to David in that sense, that there's the throne of, of David and it's, it's going to be an eternal throne. That Jesus um, will sit on, but he also just uses, he uses another example. He talks about the priests. He says they profane the Sabbath and are blameless. What does he m- mean by that? Well, you know, the, there's a prohibition against work on the Sabbath, but the priests obviously, in order to do their priestly functions, have to work on the Sabbath. They 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 must do it. You know, it's 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 a little bit of a conundrum. You know, you would think, but. They are blameless because they're doing what is appropriate from what God has given them the job, you know, to do. And so, and and then lastly, Jesus uses this primary argument where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So what he means by that is not that the rules of God are meaningless or the instructions God gave are meaningless. Certainly they are meaningful. But we don't, you don't put in this time, remember this context, they're all under the Levitical law until Jesus goes to the cross now that's a big point for us because we argue about things about the Levitical law that don't apply to us at all one because most of us aren't Jewish two because Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of, law, of the law when he died on the cross and there's all sorts of things that fall into this you know, category you know if you you can make an art, I'll just use a very simple one um, so in the Old Testament law, you know, they were not supposed to mark their bodies, meaning they weren't supposed to have tattoos, because most of the tattoos were in worship to other like false gods. If you want to make an argument today that somebody shouldn't have a tattoo, you can maybe make that argument. You just certainly can't, if you're a Christian, you just certainly can't use Leviticus to do it. Unless you're saying you're you're not a follower of Jesus, but rather you you are a proselyte of Judaism and have put yourself under a law that really you don't even have the ability to put yourself under. But you know if that's your argument, you can't be going with Jesus and then use the Levitical law to 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 make an an ultimatum of a case. You can say you could go as far as to say. Well, you know, this wasn't looked at well in the past, you know, for these reasons. Therefore, I may want to think in a similar fashion. But you can't make a law and a rule. At that point, it becomes an issue of conscience and how you read the scripture. Okay? And it becomes a, well, it really becomes a, not how much how you read the scripture. It becomes a conscience in your heart before God. And therefore, you can't impose that on another person. It okay, kind of goes some of the Romans discussion we were having in Romans 14 this last week in house fellowships. But my point with this is that what, what you can't afford to do when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is to put things in the Levitical law above the law of love and the moral law that God gave us. Because what is that law that was also in the Old Testament? Shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, you know, when, when in this situation where someone was in great need, David, and you know, in great need of food because he's incredibly hungry at this point, you don't use an overbearing interpretation of the law in order to crush him. And the Pharisees were constant in their overbearing interpretations and applications of the law. And Jesus got onto them a lot about that. Because you would, if you had understood this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now what this also means is that David actually wasn't breaking the law of God when he took it. Why? Because this was the bread that had already been replaced. So the new show bread is in place. This is the bread that the priests were then going to go in and eat. Now you say, well, David isn't a priest. okay? But what Ahimelech was concerned about was, are you and your men clean before God? Are you, in, are you not violating you know, these other parts of the law that are, that are higher that we can't violate, but we can, we, can, we can make an exception to the norm for a human good. But we do have to make sure that we still respect God and that God is holy in us doing that. So there's kind of like a, a hierarchy of... Um, Ethical need. You know, and, and, we all, when and when you're going to face those sort of situations you know, in, in life, it's important that you have a hierarchy of your, of, in your ethics. Because when you have two things that are in ethical conflict, how do you make a decision? Well, you have to have a priority of ethics. Because there are sometimes, again, in life, where tough decisions have to be made. We've used this example in the past. Just remind of it again. You know, If, if someone is going you know, to die, if, if you tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth without sarcasm or exaggeration or anything else, and someone's going to die, or you're going to say, the person you're trying to kill isn't here, you know, is your, is your commitment, we know we're supposed to tell the truth, but is that higher than a human life? And the answer to that is no. The human life is higher. And, and really when it comes, to the, comes down to our ethics and our, our morality and how we make decisions when we're looking at moral situations, life, and, and y'all are wise enough how to apply this in our current cultural context, life is the highest priority. You know, and to to say that something is higher than life, we have to have really, really, really com- a, a compelling higher ethic above life. That's really difficult to do. <laughs> it's really, you know, you, you're you're going to be struggling to try to accomplish that. So now we have another question here in this passage because. Mark, um, in the Gospel of Mark, this is also referred to Mark 2.26, related to this scene, Jesus says, in the days of Abathar the high priest, and so some people, I'm just, you know, I kind of want to throw it all out on the table here, because this is what we do, and it's important that some people will use that and say, well, you know, Samuel says Ahimelech was was the, you know, the priest, and in Mark, Jesus says Abathar, um, is the priest, and so these things are obviously in conflict, and therefore either, you know, Jesus is, is wrong, or your scripture is wrong in the Old Testament, you know, like, you've got to pick which one's wrong. Okay, that sort of thing, right? So let's, let's talk about that, a couple things to consider. So one is that Jesus was having this argument with the Pharisees. I can assure you that if Jesus made a mistake... What the scriptures said, the Pharisees are going to, you know, who hated him are going to use that as an opportunity to say, here's where Jesus is wrong. And, and we need to remember that the Pharisees knew the law and they knew the scriptures and they, they knew what was said. So they're not going to be, you know, it's not like, um, you know, a, a Bible quiz game where they're not going to know and they're, you know, having to think and guess. Who the priest was in, in these days from what first Samuel said. They know. Okay. So now that's so let's keep that in mind. That the people who had most reason to take advantage of Jesus made a, an error like that would have done it, and they, they don't. So that's important. Another a second thing. So Ahimelech's father and his son are both named Abathar. So if his father is still alive, then Abathar would still have seniority in the situation because there could be a sharing of duties. Um, We see something similar in the trial of Jesus with the shared priestly roles of Caiaphas and his father-in-law, Annas. So you have that in the situation. Um, For Jesus to say, in the days of Abathar, so it could be that Amalek's father was still alive, so that's still his days, okay? or that Jesus was referring to the son who would soon become the high priest in his connection with David. We'll see shortly that that happens and that that's a plausible option as well. But we need to be clear that Jesus does not say that it was Abathar who gave David the showbread just said it was in the days of Abathar. Okay, so he's not saying something that's you know, factually incorrect. He's still uh, factually accurate and he's able to refer to it in that way. And the Pharisees would, you know, they accepted that as, you know, there's nothing wrong with that statement. So now let's move on to verse 7 and roll through another section. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg and Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not on hand a spear or a sword? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. And David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So now this scene is wild because David takes the sword of Goliath and goes to Goliath's hometown among the Philistines. That's wild, you know, and I think well, I mean, the, the thought process here. Is if he goes and he's now an enemy of Saul, you know, kind of like the enemy, you know, of my enemy as my friend, that sort of, you know, of thinking, okay, so maybe they'll give me safety because they think I'm gonna be fighting against Saul, even though he doesn't have intention, you know, to kill Israel, you know, his fellow people. Um, he doesn't have any intention to do that, but he's thinking maybe it could be safety, but you still you see the scene and you're just like, whoa. And he went he goes in there with the sword of Goliath. And then it's like, well, they recognize him. It's kind of like, eh, yeah, they recognize you, buddy. You know, and that's kind of an interesting, interesting thing. So then, you know, it's like, what in the world is going on here? Because he's, when he gets afraid, when he sees what they're saying, he gets afraid, and he pretends to be a madman. He starts going to, and he's at the gate, at the, the city gate, scratching on the doors of it, and letting saliva fall down his, his beard. Now, why is he doing this? Well, it's actually a pretty smart thing to do. And, and to understand that, we need to like, culturally understand that it's common for you know, the peoples in these days to, to take someone's, um, you know, someone being out of their right mind as a sign of calamity. Like, if somebody comes into your... And this is why he says, this play in my presence, shall this fellow come into my house? Because it was a superstition that if, you know, a madman, you know, using the term that's used here, a madman comes into, your, into the home, that that could bring some sort of, like, curse or a calamity, a sign that the gods are against you. And it was also commonly thought that if you killed that person, then the gods you know, would basically be angry with you and do worse to you because you killed their messenger. So there was safety. It's actually really, really smart because there is safety in pretending that he is out of his mind. So that's what he does. Because he, he can't just run because if he just runs then, you know, he's, he's concerned that Achish could say, you know, go hunt him down and, and kill him. You know, send, send his army after him, and he's just got himself and a few people. And perhaps here, and this is what I want to say in, in all of this, we don't know, and so it's conjecture. We don't know how much the Lord that David is seeking the Lord in all of these individual decisions that he's making at this time. We don't know that he isn't, but we're not explicitly told that he's doing these things because God said go to Nob, God said go to Gath, God said to do these things. We don't we don't know or see that we. You know, and and I don't want to you know tip the scales too far one way or the other. But at the beginning of crisis. Our experience is at the beginning of crisis, people normally just try to solve their own problems. I, I think that's pretty true for, for us as humans. At the beginning of crisis, our immediate thoughts are, What can I do to solve X? And I think that's true with, you know, little crisis, big problem. What can I do to solve X? And then as we get deeper and deeper into the corner, of like an understanding that our solutions are not working once we've exhausted our options then everybody turns to god then everybody cries out then so i just want us to keep that in mind and again i'm not i don't want to again i don't want to tip the scales too far and say you know that that David isn't seeking in all these individual decisions what he's supposed to do. I mean say you know the pattern of the of the human heart is not to until we've exhausted our options. And so I think we can hopefully this morning we we learn from that. Moms, dads with our with our children when they're in trouble or going through something, that we seek the Lord you know, first, because you know, our tendency is, again, how do we solve whatever problem it is or whatever situation they're going through? We do the same thing, moms, dads, single people, whoever you are, married without kids yet, whoever you are. Consider when I have crisis, because who experiences crisis in life? Everybody. Everybody. Everybody experienced Christ in life. So let us learn something for that so that you don't have to be like, you know, on the doorpost scratching with saliva coming down your beard. Well, maybe that's not our context, but you understand what I'm saying. You know, don't, don't make it so that you, you make it, it, it kind of worse on yourself. So, number chapter 22. Um, We'll roll a little more this morning. It says, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. That's kind of funny, isn't it? It's like, you know, David... So he's got his family, and now he's got to worry about their safety. He's got people who, you know, for one reason or another, have found themselves in bad financial situations, and those who are just like generally discontented. Eh, Well, eventually they probably won't be happy with David either then, right? I mean... Like, I mean, that's just kind of how things, how things go. But so he becomes captain over them. There's about 400 myth with him. And it says, David went from there to Mispa of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, this is interesting. Moab. So the Moabites were consistent enemies of Israel, right? They're often under God. You know, God's going to judge the Moabites for what they've done. You know, these sort of things. But who else was a Moabite? Ruth. So where Joshua judges Ruth, first and second Samuel. So Ruth comes in the story ahead of time because Ruth is the great grandmother of David. So it makes sense that they are you know, related and and can you know and using that um, to to form at least a temporary uh, alliance for the protection of you know David's family members, particularly his father and mother. So it's interesting how these things come together, and it's again it's. It's one of those things. As you read the Bible, one of the joys is when you like make these sort of connections, and you can see, you know, the 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 more that that you know of the Bible as a whole, the more um, things make sense, and you have that just enjoyment of discovery, right? You know, and, and it's true when you're reading the New Testament if you. You know, when, when Jesus refers back, um, you know, to the story of David taking the showbread, if you, you know, it, it doesn't make, like, the argument doesn't make any sense if you don't know the story and, and have the context, right? And, there's, and, and some books are more prone to that other, but the Old Testament, you know, numerous, numerous references in the New Testament. So the more you know, uh, know the Old Testament, the, the more joy you're going to have as you read the New, And that's one reason why, you know, especially, um, you know, we have our our priorities. We spend a lot more time in the New Testament because it's about how we live as followers of Jesus. We rightly do that, okay, especially on Sundays and in our house fellowships. But, you know, in your personal devotions and your personal study, don't neglect the Old Testament. You know, there's work to be done there and there's things to enjoy and to discover there, and, and this is one of those, you know, just like little treasures of context, and of, you know, what, what's happening in the story, and, you know, it's like, I'm reading the passage to begin with, and, all, and I'm just like praying for some sort of Mother's Day connection, because it's Mother's Day. Well, here you go, because what sort of a legacy did Ruth leave? because she was unwilling to stay with her people in the worship of false gods and insisted on going back with her mother-in-law and to worship the true and living god insistent upon it even when her mother-in-law gave her terrible advice of stay here with your people and with your gods and with everything else terrible advice you know, and, and, and that's just another lesson here on Mother's Day. Just because somebody's a mother doesn't mean they aren't giving advi- bad advice and aren't doing things that are wicked and terrible and everything else. You know, everybody gets the, like, world's best mom mug and this on that. Mm, well, that's statistically not probable. Let's just go there to begin with because best means, like, best one. So, you know, <laughs> anyway, anyway, I just, <laughs> just having a little fun. You know, it's always funny, you know, when you see things like best wife, you know. I saw one on Facebook the other day, I was and, you know, and, and, it, it, you know it's, we all do it. It's fine. It's fine. You, I mean, I'm not hating on you. You put, you know, hashtag, I have, you know, best wife, or you say I have the best wife in the world, or the best husband. Right. For them, it is. But just objectively, I mean, I, I did this one the other day, so it was, it was uh, you know, lady had put, like, you know, world's best husband or whatever. And it was like, "Hmm. Hmm." I can think of a few that would probably, you know, (laughs) be a little hard. I'm so wrong. I know, I know that's so wrong. But more importantly, isn't, you know, the title of best. More important is what sort of legacy are you leaving for the generations to come? What sort of legacy are you leaving? Because, When you look at, you know, women in the scripture, you find women like Jezebel. (laughs) You don't want to leave that legacy. You don't want to leave anything close to that. There's a a reason when somebody's really mad if they know scripture, if they're really mad, and some lady's been doing awful wicked things like, Jezebel. You know, there's a reason. Nobody's walking around, you know, well, I'm going to say something derogatory and be like, Ruth. <laughs> Nobody does that. You can't do that. Why? Because she followed God. She was a person of courage, a person of faith, a person who left a legacy of following God. That's the story of you know, women that, that, that the church desperately needs. That's the sort of woman the church desperately needs is women with that sort of character and that sort of courage, and when things are difficult and things are hard, they, they push through, push through. So just thinking about that, how her faithfulness ensured, in this case, the safety of her descendants in generations, generations to come. It, we could even say in many ways because the people of Moab were wicked um, and had done great wickedness over time that her where she came from was redeemed because of her faithfulness to the Lord. And that's another this lesson there that it's not where you start or where you came from or who your, the, the previous generations were or this or that. It's about who you are in Jesus, your identity in Him, and building on Him. And you know, because sometimes a legacy has to start somewhere. See, so that legacy didn't start with Ruth's mom or Ruth's grandmother, great or whoever it was. Started with her. She set out on a new course and a new path. And from all of the dysfunction from all of the dysfunction in our society, in our world today, and how particularly the basic, the most fundamental basic building block of society, the family, has been slaughtered. Just slaughtered. We need to, uh, scripturally there's a call for people to start new legacies. To say, I'm not gonna repeat the sins of the previous generations. It it stops here. It stops here. And we start afresh in a new here. And we continue on. We continue on to, you know, we set it up, at least set it up to where we've removed obstacles and we've removed the barriers for those who come behind us to walk on a smoother path. They're still gonna have their own choices and their own decisions to make, but at least they will have a legacy to look back to and say, I have a mom or I have a dad or I had someone who, they stopped it and now I have an opportunity, they stopped the bad and started on the good and I have the opportunity to continue in that good. It's easier for me to continue in that good because of the decisions that they made. Of course, everybody still has their option. Because if you're the first one, you've got to get out of the bad and, and get to the right path, right? You've got to get out of the broad way that leads to destruction and get onto the narrow that leads to life. So everybody has that decision to make. But how much better for our children if they have a legacy to look to and say, I have... In my family. And you know, you may end up having to be that for a nephew, for nephews and nieces. You may have to be that for the kid down the street or the kid at your at the school that's in the class with your kids. You may have to be that legacy for them. Where they say, I had a spiritual father. I had a spiritual mother who took care of me, who made it possible, who made it probable for me to start a new legacy for my family. Now, the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart, and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And this is rough. It says, Now when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a teramish tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjaminites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, all of you who have conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Obviously, Jonathan is not on the scene. And that is sad and important. You know, if this is a period of time, Jonathan will be back with him later, but this is a period of time where, you know, Saul would just probably have killed him or tried to kill him. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and he required of the Lord, for him, gave him provisions, and gave them the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king and said, Saul said, "Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and the sword, and inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all of this, little or much. Now, and again, Ahimelech, he defends David. But he also has real plausible deniability here. Because he didn't really know what was going on. But the king, you know, the king, he's in a situation where you can't reason with unreasonable. There's sometimes in situations in life where you just, you know, you can have all the logic and all the reason and all the truth and everything can be on your side and the other person just doesn't care just doesn't care. And this is one of those situations. You can't, yeah, you can sometimes, sometimes no matter how truthful the argument, it's not going to do you any good. And the king said, you shall surely die at Himelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and because they knew what he, when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hand to strike the priests of the Lord and the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. And also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. So Doeg was you know, obviously a, a wicked person, and there's a part in here this morning, though, that I don't want us to just overlook or ignore because it's difficult. Because If you go back to verse seven um, in the previous chapter, in twenty-one seven, it says that when he was in the that he was there when you know David and Ahimelech are having this conversation, that he is there because he is detained by the Lord. And there's some question about you know what does that mean that he was detained that Edom this Doeg, the Edomite, this wicked man, is there before the priests and he's detained by the Lord. There are several things that have been said about this. I'm gonna be truthful with you here. When it comes to commentaries, most the majority of commentaries I looked at just like it's like this wasn't even a thing. Like wasn't even there. Because it's hard. And the truth is that a lot of times commentaries will tell you the things that you kind of already know because it's obvious in the passage and then the hard stuff, it's kind of like, crickets, chirp, 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 chirp. You're like, this is what I came here for, was to get some sort of information on the stuff that's not obvious to figure out. Like, you know, the middle school student could have written what you wrote in the commentary. I need the hard stuff. Where's that? You know, and and some are brave enough to tackle those things. But um, sadly, have you noticed that when you go to your commentaries? You're like, come on now. Somebody give me something. Somebody give me the real scoop, the real story. So it could have been that because he's an Edomite, he is having to go through some sort of um, steps to be considered a an Israelite, or a, to be considered you know, part of their, their group as you know, in a cultural way, that he's fulfilling some sort of obli- obligation, or that he is fulfilling some sort of vow he made, because even wicked people will make vows you know, to God, right? I mean, wicked people will say, well, God, if this happens, then I'll do X, and then this happens, and then they do X. Like, that's still a thing. We don't know why exactly he is there in that sense. But you cannot get around the fact, the very basic fact of the matter, that God knew he was there and that God could have made the timing different to where he wouldn't have been there when David was there. I mean, that's pretty unavoidable, right? I think that any commentary that doesn't address that is sidestepping the issue. The issue is that God is sovereign, in the sense that God is all powerful and all knowing and all-wise and could very easily not have Edom on the scene when David comes in there. I think we should be able to, you know, we we see that. So any any talk about that conversation that doesn't address that, I think, is sidestepping the real issue. Why he was there in terms of a vow or this, that, or the other reason is really secondary. The point is that he was there. And that God knew he was going to be there. knew David was going to be there. Knew all three of them were going to be there. And knows, because he's all-knowing, what Doeg is going to do with that information. So there's a couple things we have to say about that. One is that Doeg is fully, he is a wicked man. He is fully responsible for all of his own sin. Mark 7.21 says, From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Doeg is a wicked man with a wicked heart, and he's set to do wicked things. Any wickedness that Doeg did not commit in his life is because God restrains him. He would have long before this, any given opportunity on any day before this to kill Israelites or just to kill the priest or whoever, you can be certain that Doeg the Edomite would have taken it. God's restraining hand keeps him from being a constant murderer. All he needs is an opportunity and a license. He's ready to kill, not even just kill but murder. He's, all he needs is opportunity and, and a license that he's not going to pay for it with his own life. He, he is joyful. Not joyful, it's probably the wrong word, but he is, that is the wrong word. He is happy in a human emotional sense. He is happy to hear this from Saul. It also shows you how far Saul is from God the priests people who had nothing to do with the situation he's just looking to take his wrath out on someone because he can't take it out on David right now so who else is in the way the uncomfortableness for us again this is not different though than what you find with Stephen, the first martyr of the gospel in the book of Acts, where God knows it all and is okay with Stephen being martyred. Fully allows that to happen. Does not stop it. Fully has the power to stop it because God is God. And again, it's hard for us to come to grips with that. It's hard for us to reconcile that, but we have to preach it Particularly in a culture, in a the culture of Christianity that we have in our nation. See, you don't have to preach this so hard to believers in China, in Iran, in Iraq, in North Korea. They get it that following God doesn't mean they're safe physically. Following God means they're eternally safe spiritually. don't have to preach that hard to them. They preach that to us. We need them to come in. If we could could be so blessed and to be so privileged as to have North Korean and Chinese and Iranian believers come in and tell us how they've suffered for the gospel and that it's worth suffering for. You see, we have a lot to learn from other, you know, from the church as a whole, that experiences a different day by day faith than we do. We have a lot to learn from them. In that passage that we looked at in Romans this last week, it talked about weak the weak followers of Jesus and the strong followers of Jesus, and these cultural issues at play, and how it's different than you often think. Well, let me just. Go ahead and say it for the record. The believers who actively are suffering for their faith are the strong ones. Those of us who have to suffer very little have not had to exercise those disciplines that that requires. And therefore, just like the person who works out every day and the person who doesn't, there's a difference in strength. We are the weak ones. Comparatively. I'm not... You know, today, Chet, say my faith was weak. That's not the point. That's not the point. Folks, that's not the point. I'm talking about our collective our. O-U-R. Not a you. As there's something deficient in you. I'm talking about our, that because of, the, of our limited experiences in suffering for the Lord... that we're largely unprepared to suffer for the Lord. We're ill-equipped for it. But we, can't, we are not, folks, we are not guaranteed that the rest of your life, and particularly the lives of your children and grandchildren, are going to be experienced the same way. We have had an unprecedented amount of time of safety for those who are in a particular socioeconomic, ethnic position. Hey, you're not to blame for that. I'm not to blame for that. None of us got to decide when and where and time and space and history and everything that we were born and what the Lord would have us to do. It's not about blame or feeling guilty or bad or anything like that. It's not. It's not that. If you take it as that, you've missed it. What it is is just an understanding of reality that there is no safer place to be than the hand of God. Than in the hand of God. And it is dangerous. There is no safer place to be than in the hand of God. And it is dangerous. Those are not mutually exclusive. Those are together in the historical faith that we have entered into from Genesis to Revelation. From the beginning to the end. We have to come to grips with that. Or we risk cheapening the gospel our savior our God our faith the faith of our children we can't keep doing that as a culture as a society and that's why and and listen this isn't just running rapid here But it's running rampant all over the world now with this, you know, your best life now prosperity gospel that views suffering as a lack of faith and of punishment and of this and that and the other thing. It doesn't coincide with the historical record that God gave us in his scriptures. And we need to be very wary of things that don't reconcile with that. That are vastly different than that. We need to be very weary. But we have hope. Verse 20, Now one of the sons of Himalek, the son of Ahitob, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. So David said to Abathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks yours, but with me you shall be safe. David has to learn a powerful lesson that he's responsible that to be ultimately to be king to be responsible for the lives of others and that his decisions affect others. And knowing what he knew, if he had that sense in his gut and in his heart of who Doeg was, you have to question, you know, you had the sword of Goliath right there with you. You know, you you think he might have wanted a do-over on that one? He wrote in Psalm fifty-two, and 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 we think this could be connected. We'll finish with this. Hold on. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction, like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living, the righteous also shall see in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did make, not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise God forever because, I'll praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. There's still hope in all of that in all of that there is still hope but it's a a tough scene David takes his responsibility but we also need to understand Edom is fully responsible for his wickedness Saul is fully responsible for his wickedness all of those there who quaked in fear unwilling to commit the sin themselves but stood idly by while someone else did because they didn't want to die they also have their own guilt. It's different amounts of guilt, of course. But to him who knows good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. is what the scripture teaches us. If Jonathan had been there, and and we have that record before, you know, Saul wanted Jonathan killed because he took the honey. Right? Remember that scene? And the men said, no, shall he die? Surely not. They had... Together, especially, they had the collective will and power to stand up and say no. It could have been that transition to David being king could have been a whole lot smoother for everybody if those men who were there had stood up and done the right thing. But they acted cowardly. And I think that that's the biggest deal, folks. You know, as we go through life, you know, you can, you're going to have fears. You're going to have fears. But let's let being cowardly be a higher fear than the other fears. That we don't want to live a cowardly life, don't want to die a cowardly life, want we'll to live a bold and courageous life. And what does that mean? It means facing the things that would make us cowardly. Facing our fears. Our fears is, you know, why were these people afraid to do the right thing? Well, they were afraid they were going to die. Well, maybe that's something to address. Afraid you're going to die? Take some time to pray and think through that because we're all going to die. Afraid somebody's going to speak bad about you? Well, that's probably going to happen anyway. <laughs> right? Yep. Might as well speak bad about me because I love Jesus as opposed to the stupid stuff I do or pro to do while trying to safeguard myself. Right? So just put it all in perspective in relation of Jesus and that he is worthy. He is our Savior and he is our King and he is worthy of any cost. And be thankful that oftentimes our cost is pretty small. Our cost is pretty small. But let's be willing to pay that too. Because that's where we can get hung up, you know. And and I'm afraid that we miss out a lot. You know, people who are going to be willing to to die for Jesus. And, uh, you know, God never has you in that situation. But he has you in, like, has you and I to this point in life lots of little situations to do what's right to speak for him to let people know his love and his glory and his truth to defend the defenseless God gives us those opportunities every day so you know I know myself we can get hung up on talking big because you know we read in the scripture of people dying for the Lord or dying in his service Well, doggone it. I mean, the reality is I'm probably not going to be faced with that today or tomorrow. But I'm going to be faced with lots of other little decisions. Be faithful in those. Pray for me to be faithful in those. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. We thank you for your love and your grace. and Your word is so full and rich and good and has so many things in there for us to help us to love your word and to be in it consistently and diligently. Help me, Lord, as I'm continually amazed at, at your, your goodness. And yet some things are difficult and some things are hard to wrap our minds around. And well, There's a lot to a lot of things that we never really have a good answer to other than we, we right now just have to trust you. And do what we know we're supposed to do. And to leave the things that are bigger than us in your hands. But help us to constantly and consistently seek you in your face. Thank you for this bread and for this cup that we take today. Help us to do so having you examine our hearts and taking it in a pure way before you. We're so thankful for the legacy that Ruth was able to leave behind that we still benefit from today. God, that is so good. And may, if Lord, if, unless you return sooner, may people, even generations from us, be blessed because of each person in this room And that that would go well belong, beyond biological, just like Ruth to us, but it would be spiritual. That we, because of Jesus, share in her legacy. And that because of Jesus, others not related physically, biologically to us at all can be blessed by ours. Help us to give you glory and honor in all things, dear Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.